Welcome everyone. My name is Tim Harris, pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church. If you're a guest, uh, God bless you. So glad that you're here. If you're joining us on video or by podcast, welcome to you. We love you so much. Overflow, God bless you. Perry, Oklahoma, Pastor Brian, we love you. Uh, God bless you all. Here at Woodburn, we're praying for a fresh encounter. Uh, Many of us have been Christians for years uh, and years, and, and, and honestly, it doesn't matter how long you followed Christ, our tendency is still to depart from him. Our tendency is to wander and to stray, and and there's always only one problem in our lives, and that is sin. It's sin. That's why in order for us to have a fresh encounter, in order for us to have a great revival, we must first have a great repentance, and I want us to talk about that today. True, genuine repentance. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll start in verse 8 for our scripture today. I want to start off, though, with a with a news story. This is straight out of the straight out of the the news, and I'm going to read it exactly as it was printed. You're going to think I make this stuff up. You can't make this stuff up. You ever heard the saying? You know, I'll do that when pigs fly. You ever heard that when pigs fly? Uh, okay. Well, listen to this. This is the headline: Unruly pig flies first class. Okay. Here we go. A pig recently traveled on a six-hour U.S. Airways flight from Philadelphia to Seattle. Two passengers convinced the airline representative that the pig needed to fly with them as a therapeutic companion pet like a seeing-eye dog. Okay, okay, did you hear me say it's a pig? On an airplane. They produced a doctor's notice to the effect, so the pig was permitted to sit with them in the first-class cabin of the plane. Okay, you can't really take a bottle of shampoo on a plane anymore, but these two ladies got a pig in first class. Passengers described the 300-pound pig as enormous, brown, angry, and honking. It was an angry pig. He was seated in three seats near the front of the plane. You hear that? He had three seats. But the attendants reportedly had difficulty strapping him in. It became restless after takeoff and sauntered through the cabin, one passenger said. He kept rubbing his nose on people's legs, trying to get them to give him food and stroke him. Upon landing, things only got worse. They got worse. The article reports, the pig panicked, running up and down through economy class, squealing. Many passengers, also screaming, stood on their seats. It took four attendants to escort the pig out of the airplane, but he escaped upon reaching the terminal. He was later recaptured. When asked to comment on the story, U.S. Airways spokesman David Castleveder said, We can confirm that the pig traveled, and we can confirm that it will never happen again. Let me stress that it will never happen again. Man, nothing fun happens when I fly. Nothing fun like that ever happens. I want to focus on that phrase, it will never happen again. He says, we can confirm that it happened. We can also confirm it will never happen again. Let me stress, he says, it will never happen again. How many times have we heard that phrase, it will never happen again? How many times have you said in your own life, I will never let that happen again. I'll never say that again. I'll never do that again. I want you to think about that phrase and how many times you've said it because honestly most of us say that a lot or we've said it a lot in our lives and yet these things continue to happen again. There's something about the human heart, there's something about our sinful hearts 
we just simply continue to go back to all the things we said would never, ever happen again. So I want us to focus today on how change really happens, how life change really happens. And when we're talking about the Christian faith, when we're talking about salvation, we're talking about life change. Make no mistake, if there's no change, there's no salvation. We're talking about life change. So let's focus on what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, in verse 8, he starts out talking about a letter that he wrote. So so let me introduce the passage by talking about the the letters. You know that 1 and 2 Corinthians in in the New Testament, these are letters. Yes, they're books of the Bible. They're tiny little books, if you want to call it a book. But they're letters. Paul wrote these letters to a church in a place called Corinth. Actually, when you say church, don't think about a big church like ours. Think about a, a, a group of people, groups of people meeting in different houses. These are house churches that all sort of come together to, to form the church at Corinth. It's individual house churches, kind of like our fresh encounter groups, that, that sort of thing. That's what the church looked like. But there was sin in the church. When Paul writes the first letter, what we have is 1 Corinthians, he he alludes to that, he suggests that. But in 2 Corinthians, it's very obvious that the sin was rancorous, that the sin was a cancer, and Paul has had to write another letter. Now the thing is, we don't have that letter. We've got 1 Corinthians, and we've got 2 Corinthians, but honestly, 2 Corinthians is obviously not the second letter he wrote. It's at least the third, because there's a letter in between these two letters that Paul only refers to as the painful letter. He must have written a, a blistering letter to them. Go back to chapter 2. Let, 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 me, let me get you there. Verse 4. Paul says, I wrote that letter in great anguish with a troubled heart and many tears. I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. And in Paul's great love for this church, he had to talk about their sin. He had to point out their sin. And in a blistering, painful letter, Paul confronts them with their sin. It got ugly before it got better. And by the time he writes 2 Corinthians chapter 7, it's better. But but let's look at the process that got them there. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 8. I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first. For I know it was painful to you for a little while. It's an important phrase, for a little while. Now I'm glad I sent it, not because it hurts you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. Underline that phrase. The pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you were not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Such earnestness, such concern to clear yourself, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal, and such a readiness to punish wrong. You showed that you have done everything necessary to make things right. That's as far as we'll go. Take your seats. There's a kind of sorrow that God wants his people to have. 
the scripture makes it clear there is a kind of sorrow that God wants you to have there was a a woman who asked her pastor if he would go visit her brother he was uh, a, a bitter man and the pastor through the years had actually prayed for him when the sister would mention his name but they all knew that he was not a Christian they also knew that he was a very very troubled very sinful very very bitter man so the pastor said sir I'll go see him he was dying in the veterans hospital now this was just one of those men and maybe you've had one of those guys in your life he was just a, a crusty old veteran he had lost an arm in Vietnam and so he sat there with that one arm that that stump and he just railed and continued to belt out his bitterness to everybody through his whole life pastor walked in the hospital room though and, and he said but, but brother I just wanted to come by and see you I've heard that the news isn't good and there's just a question that I feel like I really need to ask you. Have you ever, sir, have you ever turned to Jesus and, and asked him to, to forgive you of your sins? Have you ever turned to Jesus and asked for forgiveness? Well, the old man said about what you'd expect him to say. He said, preacher, my sister's done since you here to see me, hadn't she? My sister sent you here. Let me just tell you, preacher, you don't know her like I know her. You see her at church, but I've seen her everywhere else. I've known her longer than you. She's nothing but a hypocrite, and in her whole life, she ain't done thing number one to help me. So I don't think that she's trying to help me now by sending me you. Now let me go on, preacher. You asked about my sins. I ain't praying for forgiveness for nothing. My old man hated me, and the hatred was mutual. I hated my old man. I have enjoyed every drop of whiskey I have ever drunk. I have loved and left a lot of women. And I'm telling you, I ain't sorry. I ain't praying for forgiveness because I ain't sorry. What do you say to somebody like that? What do you say to somebody who, who honestly needs to repent? Because we all need to repent. But what do you say to a person who just isn't sorry? And that was the condition of that old man. He, he said it plainly, and he was telling the preacher very, very honestly. There was nothing in what he said that wasn't honest. He said it. I've sinned, and I've enjoyed my sin. I've enjoyed every minute of my sin. I ain't sorry. I've done a lot of things wrong. I don't feel bad. I just am not sorry. This is a very serious issue because the scripture makes very, very plain that, that true repentance, genuine repentance, requires what Paul calls godly sorrow. You cannot have genuine, true repentance outside of some sort of godly sorrow. And this is a man saying, I ain't sorry. I'll never be sorry. What do you do about that? Paul says there's a kind of sorrow that God wants us to experience. There's a, a kind of sorrow that God wants his people to have. It is the kind that leads us away from our sin. There is a sorrow, there's a sadness, there's a brokenness that is very, very important for every single human heart. It's a brokenness over sin. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about. And I'm begging you to listen to me. I'm begging you to listen to me. You've got to hear what the scripture says. True repentance, true repentance, the kind that saves your soul, 
True repentance, the kind that leads to a life change. True repentance, the kind that leads to your salvation, it requires a a godly sorrow. Now, back to the letter. Paul says, I'm not sorry that I sent that painful letter, that, that, that severe letter to you. Although I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful to you for a, a, a little while. So you understand, Paul loves these people. He, he loves the church at Corinth, but he can see their sin. That that's not to say Paul is somehow judging them, that, that Paul is self-righteous, that Paul thinks he's in the position somehow to, to point out th- th- their sin. You understand, Paul is not that guy. Don't make him that guy. In other instances, Paul himself, he recognizes his own sin. He calls himself the the, the chief of sinners. This is not some judgmental preacher, some self-righteous Christian who takes delight in pointing out other people's faults. That's not who Paul is. He loves these people. He loves these people, and he understands something about sin. He knows that sin destroys a person. Sin is a cancer in the human soul. And Paul loves them enough to write a letter that he understands is going to cause them pain. Paul puts everything at risk by writing that painful letter. He risks his relationship to them. He jeopardizes everything that he's tried to build at Corinth. And he said, I only did it because I love you. I only wrote the letter because you needed to know the love I have for you. But the love that he had for them involves sometimes telling them the truth. Telling them the truth about their own hearts, the truth about their own sin. He could not say he was a loving pastor and not come back around and say that sin in the middle of your life, that sin in the middle of your heart, that sin growing in the very midst of the church, it's a cancer and it's got to go. It's got to go. You have to turn from your sin, Paul says, and he knows they won't enjoy hearing that. He says, when I wrote it at first, I I, I regretted it. I I felt a little bit sorry because I knew how hard it was going to be. He knew everything that could happen because of what he had written, but he had to write it. Do you understand? He had to write it. One of the things you recognize about godly sorrow is that you've got to experience it. You're going to have to feel it. But at the same time, sometimes you might have to cause it. You might be the one that has to point out the sin that's about to send somebody over the edge, the sin that could literally ruin their lives. And if you love them enough, at some point, you may have to say, please look at your life. Please look at your life. Look at what you're doing. Think this through. There's a poison. There is a rottening inside your heart. Please look at your heart. That's what Paul does. He says, I knew it was going to cause you pain. I knew it was going to cause trouble between me and you. And honestly, read the whole book of 2 Corinthians. I mean, things blew up in a big way. It blew up. It got ugly before it got better. But it did get better. It got better. Actually, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's miraculous. It's amazing. It's what you need in your life. It's what happened right here. And what was the key? What was the ingredient that led to repentance, that led to reconciliation? What was the ingredient that led to salvation? It's what Paul calls godly sorrow. There was godly sorrow that that came from the pain of having their sin pointed out. It was godly sorrow. 
Now, Paul sets godly sorrow up against its opposite. And the opposite of godly sorrow, according to Paul, is worldly sorrow. He says there's godly sorrow and there's worldly sorrow, and they're very, very different. Now, that's interesting because I would think that the opposite of godly sorrow would be like no sorrow. That the opposite of, of being sorry would be not being sorry. But, but that's not what Paul says at all. It, it's not that the opposite is, is, is not sorry. The opposite is, is a worldly kind of sorrow. Honestly, I struggle with the lack of sorrow in my own life more than worldly sorrow, perhaps. And my hunch is you do too. And I talk about that old, that old man in the veterans hospital with one arm saying he ain't sorry. Man, I preach to that man every Sunday. Because in a lot of ways, he's you. He's me. Let's be just painfully honest with one another. We all sin. I sin. I sin. You sin. But for the most part, we ain't sorry. We're just not sorry. We're not. We're just not. We continue to sin. Now, there are specific circumstances sometimes that unfold that will make me begin to feel sorry when it comes to my sin. For the most part, it's if, it's, it's if my sin somehow backfires on me. Now, when sin backfires, and all of a sudden you're going to have a sorry person. Are y'all listening to me? When your sin backfires, when somehow it, it starts having consequences and you start to feel the consequences, then you get sorry. I'm the same way. If, if it backfires on me, or if somehow my sin embarrasses me, if I get found out, if, if the sin that I thought was going to be a secret, all of a sudden people begin to find out. If, if my wife discovers my sin, or, or if those who love me, my friends, or, or if even perfect strangers, if I'm exposed in my sin, then I might begin to feel sorry. You understand? I typically don't feel sorry until somehow it backfires on me, because I enjoy my sin. I, I do. You enjoy your sin also. If it didn't do something for us, we wouldn't keep going back to it. Sin is pleasurable. Sin often does answer some deep desire in your own heart, whether it's a desire for pleasure, or whether it's a desire simply to indulge yourself, or whether it is that delicious desire to hurt somebody, to, to gossip, to, to somehow strike back, to satisfy the anger in your own heart. I'm telling you, when we sin, we typically like it. We, we like it. We're sinners. This is what we do better than anything else. We sin, and we don't feel sorry about it. Sometimes we do. I grant you, sometimes we do, but, but a lot of the time we don't. We just don't. We don't feel sorry at all. If we get away with it, if nobody ever finds out, if we enjoyed it, we see nothing to regret, and that is why we continue in our sin. We don't feel sorry. Are you hearing me? I don't think we feel sorry very much at all. That's why we continue in sin. But Paul doesn't really even talk about that. He, he talks about what he calls worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow. So, so this is a kind of feeling bad. It, it's a kind of, of, of regret. It, it's probably guilt. And it has something to do with sin, has something to do with recognizing that, that what you've done is wrong, that recognizing that there are, are consequences. But Paul says it's a worldly kind of sorrow. 
And honestly, we can see that, and often we experience this. When we do repentance, when we act like we're sorry, and when we go through all the motions of repentance, usually what we're actually experiencing is worldly sorrow. And it's very different from the godly sorrow that Paul wants us to see. Worldly sorrow kind of looks like godly sorrow in the sense that there can be a lot of regret. And there can be a lot of guilt involved. And there can be just an incredible abundance of apology. A person experiencing worldly sorrow can be very apologetic. A person experiencing that kind of worldly sorrow and regret will tell you, I will never do that again. It'll never happen again, baby. As long as we're married, I'll never do that again. I'll never drink too much again. I will never hit you again. Mom, Dad, I will not be late again. I will always be on time. I will never say that to you again. I will never hurt you in that way again. I promise you, as long as I live, never again. It'll never happen again. But you understand? it happens again it happens again so that that worldly sorrow that Paul talks about that regret that guilt that horrible feeling that you have when you say I'm never gonna do that again you understand it doesn't lead to true repentance you do it again it doesn't lead to any kind of change in your life you're going to do it again as soon as the worldly sorrow evaporates, as soon as you no longer feel guilty, as soon as your parents have forgotten about it and moved on, as soon as your wife goes on and leaves the house, you're going to do it again. Because worldly sorrow does not lead to any kind of genuine repentance. Now let's define that word repentance. What does it mean? It doesn't just mean to feel sorry. Repentance is not just to feel sorry. Repentance means to turn around, literally to, to change your mind. Now remember, all sin has to do with a lie. All temptation has to do with a lie. So anytime we sin, to some degree we are believing a, a lie, one of the lies of the tempter. So certainly repentance has to do with this change of mind where we recognize the truth. The truth about what we have done. The truth about what our sin creates and, and destroys in our lives. Repentance always has to do with, with the change of mind, but it's not just internal. It's a change of mind that will be expressed in a change of life. In other words, you're walking this path, and then you repent, and you turn around, and you walk in the other direction. There is no such thing as repentance that isn't followed by life change, that isn't followed by change. Now, if you experience a, a sort of repentance where you say you're sorry, whether it's to God or other people, you go through this worldly sorrow, and you're so broken, and you're so embarrassed, but if you end up right back, right back in the same sin, you understand that repentance was not genuine. That's worldly sorrow. It does not lead to repentance. It does not lead to salvation. Are you listening to me? This is the scary part for some of us because what you consider salvation, what you count on for the assurance that you belong to Christ is actually some sort of experience of worldly sorrow back at some point in your life. But there's been no change, no turning away from your sin. So understand, there's no salvation. No salvation apart from repentance and no repentance apart from what Paul calls godly sorrow godly sorrow. Paul says, 
I'm not sorry that I sent you that severe letter. I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful, painful to you for a little while. It's painful. I do know how desperately some of us really want to change. I understand that. I'm a sinner just like you. I may not have your same sins, but I have my own sins, and I understand what it is to be a slave to sin. I do. I know what it means to have that sin that you return to over and over and over, and every time you despise yourself and you're ashamed of yourself and you think, I never, ever want to do that again. God, forgive me. I never want to do that again. But, but you continue to go back. We continue to go back. And you understand, change is really, really difficult. If you could change by yourself, if you could change yourself just by deciding to be different, if you could change yourself just by letting your wife continue to nag you, if you could somehow instigate change on your own, you would have already changed. You understand? This is a hopeless situation for all of us as sinners because it's not in you. It's not in me to change. I'm powerless over the sin in my life. I, I just am. That's why Scripture says what we're slaves to it. If you could change on your own, you would already have changed. But the fact is, you and I can't change ourselves. And people don't change for nothing. Typically, something's got to happen. Something's got to stir. One way or the other, in your life, the pain of your sin, the pain of staying the same, somehow has to become greater than the pain of going through the change. And that's the point that some of us just never, ever reach. You see, the, the, the pain, the, the suffering, the misery of your life as it is has to reach the point where you are ready for something different, so ready that you will suffer the, the, the very difficult process of change. So understand, the pain is necessary. The, the pain is necessary. You'll never be led to repentance. You'll never really seek real change unless you become very, very uncomfortable. You've got to somehow begin to feel the pain of the life you're living, the pain of sin. Paul says, it really was hard for me. I regretted in some way sending you that letter because I knew it was going to cause pain for a little while. Now let's talk about that a second. It's that little while. Because some of us, honestly, we do pain pretty well. And this also is a kind of slavery. Some of us despise ourselves for our sin. We can't stand ourselves. We are so ashamed. We feel so unworthy. We feel so guilty. And the guilt is this tremendous dark cloud heavy over our heads every single day. We live these horrible lives of guilt and feeling absolute slavery to the shame. Now understand... That pain can be good when it leads you to repentance. And once you repent and you receive forgiveness and understand, that pain is not supposed to be a part of your life. You're not supposed to always live with that horrible feeling of shame and guilt. God does not want that for you. But when you're in your sin, that's exactly what you're going to experience, shame and guilt. That if you have repented and left your sin, and if you're walking now with the Lord and you've received forgiveness, understand that shame and that guilt, that pain is not supposed to be a part of your life. Paul says that that pain is necessary for a little while. Or I would say for as long as it takes. As long as it takes for you to repent and change. 
But after repentance, understand, God does not intend for you to live under this cloud of shame and guilt and condemnation. That's not from God. But the pain is necessary. I'm glad I sent it, not because it hurts you, but because the pain caused you to say the word, repent. Repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. The kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. I know I'm talking to a house of people who would say they're Christians. Most of you would say you're Christians. I just have to ask you, where was the repentance? Where was the repentance? If you're going to talk about your salvation, you've got to talk about a change. You've got to talk about a change. You cannot still be the same bitter, angry woman that you've always been. Do you understand? There is a change. You cannot say that you have come to Christ and yet you've not left your sin. That is not even possible. Where was the repentance? Right now in the life of our church, we're begging God for revival. We're begging God to return to us in his presence and in his power. Begging God to come back and give us a fresh encounter with him. But you understand, we will never have that great revival until we have a great repentance. It is our sin that is blocking us from God. It is our sin that blocks our prayers. It is our sin that separates us from God. Sin always does that. It it always does that. And repentance always involves a deliberate and obvious turning away from sin. A a deliberate and obvious turning away from your sin. Whether your sin is alcohol and drugs, whether your sin is sexual, whether your sin is anger, whether it is gossip, whether it is disobedience to your parents, whatever your sin, you understand there is a turning away from that. And if there is no turning away from that, there is no salvation. There is no repentance. Brother Tim, that sounds kind of harsh. We all sin. None of us is perfect. And you're exactly right. None of us is perfect. We're all sinners. But all sin separates us from God. Even the sins I I commit after I'm a Christian, those sins still begin to pile up between me and, and God. Do you understand? That's where the godly sorrow kicks in. The the worldly sorrow, the the sorrow that Paul talks about that's false, the sorrow that doesn't lead to any kind of change, that sorrow is usually more about myself. I I feel really sorry, but mostly because I got caught, or mostly because I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed of myself, mostly because I regret the circumstances, the consequences. Worldly sorrow has this focus that's still on me. It's a reflex of my ego. Do you understand? It's just a reflex of my ego. It's still all about me. But godly sorrow is different. It's different. I'm not even really talking about like feeling sorry because honestly sometimes we don't feel sorry. I don't always feel sorry for my sin in that way. I may have gotten away with it. It may be a secret sin. Nobody may know. At this point in my life, I may not feel any heat from my sin. There may have been no obvious circumstances, no consequences that I suffer. I may not feel any regret for my sin at all when it comes to me. 
But do you understand what sin is to God? Do you understand that every instance of sin, I don't care if it's a small sin, a little bitty sin, a a big granddaddy sin, I, I don't care. Every single instance of sin that separates from God. God cannot just simply overlook it. God doesn't make an excuse for you like your mama always did. You understand? Every sin separates from God. Every sin requires confession and repentance. It is the Christian way of life. We must continue to come back to God and confess. It's what the scripture says. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's not just a one-time experience when you're a child and walk the aisle. That's the Christian way of life. Every Every sinful habit, every sinful thought, every instance of sin in your life, it separates you from God. So let me ask you, do you want God? Do you want to walk with the Lord? Do you want to know his love? Do you want to know his closeness? Do you want the healing and grace and forgiveness that he brings to your life? Do you want to bask in the beauty of his holiness in worship? Do you want God? Because if you want God, you can't have your sin. If you want God, you can't have your sin. And if you don't want God, you can't be a Christian. Are you listening? You have to want God. You have to want him in your life. You have to want Christ. You have to want him. And if you want your sin more than you want him, you can't be a Christian. You can't. That's why your heart should break in every instance of sin. That's why you should have this godly sorrow that leads you to change. Because you begin to understand what your sin means to God, how it offends him, how it is a contradiction of his holiness, how nothing that is sinful can come into his holy presence. If you want God, you can't have your sin too. If you want God, your heart will begin to break over the sin in your life that separates you from him. Do you want God to understand That every instance of sin, according to scripture, every instance of sin is punishable by death. That's what the scripture says. The wages of sin is death. Every act of sin is punishable by death. But God who loved you so much, God who loves the world so much, does not want to see the world of sinners perish in their sin. Every sin It's punishable by death. So what did God do? He sent his son, Jesus, the sinless one, to die in our place. Are you listening? God stepped down himself. He died. He paid the price for your sin. So understand, your sin is serious. It's serious to God. And your forgiveness is costly. It's costly. It costs God his life. It costs Jesus his blood. Do you want God? Do you want Christ in your life? Do you want salvation? Then you must want God more than you want your sin. 
if that doesn't break your heart, then you are in real jeopardy, real danger. Old man said, I know my sister sent you to me, but you don't know her like I know her. She's a hypocrite. She goes to your church, and that's the way you see her, but I've known her longer, and I know her better than you do. And it's all my whole life, she ain't done thing number one to help me. So let me just tell you, preacher, my old man hated me, and the feelings was mutual. I have enjoyed every drop of whiskey I have ever drunk, and I have loved and left a lot of women. I ain't praying for forgiveness for nothing. I ain't sorry. I ain't sorry for any of it. I'm not sorry. What do you say to a man like that? Preacher just said, sir, I, I appreciate your honesty. I just got one question for you, though. You say you're not sorry for any of your sins. You say you're not sorry. But let me ask you, are you sorry you're not sorry? Are you sorry you're not sorry? The old man sat there in the bed for the longest time, didn't say a word for the longest time. water came up in his eyes and then finally he just crumpled into tears this old man who said he was never sorry he just crumpled into tears and he just started praying oh God don't look at my life oh God don't look at my life oh God don't look at my life God don't look at my life do you understand God can't turn his eyes away from your life. He loves you. He cannot not look at your life. And when he looks at your life, he sees a soul that he loves enough to die for, but he also sees sin. And in the perfection of his holiness, you can't be in his presence. You can't have his presence, his salvation, his grace. You can't have that and have your sin too. You've got to leave that. He can't look away from your life. And he sees your sin. So what are you going to do? You may not be sorry, but let me just ask you, are you sorry that you're not sorry? You ever stop to think about where this road leads if you continue to choose your sin over the God who loved you enough to die for you? Do you understand that when God looks at your life, he can't look away from your sin? And you can't hide your sin. There's no place in heaven and earth where you can hide your sin from him. Except one place. One place. If you will take your sin to the cross of Jesus, lay your sin there behind the cross of Jesus, If you will put your sin at the cross of Jesus, lay it down and walk away. It's gone forever. Look at your heart. Look at your heart. Look at your 
know if you feel any sorrow or not, but you need to understand your sin breaks the heart of God. You may not be feeling sorry today, but just begin to pray that at least you can begin to be sorry that you're not sorry because at some point you have got to feel the pain that will lead you to repentance. True repentance is impossible outside of godly sorrow. I pray with all of my heart that your heart breaks. I pray your heart breaks. Jesus, most of us in this house, most of us, Lord, in the sound of my voice, we call ourselves Christians, and yet we live like hell. We live like hell. Our mouths are filthy, our hearts are hard. Lord, we live like hell. We come to church and worship you and we sing songs and we pray and we smile and we roll in and out of this place with no awareness of how our sin stinks in your nostrils, how our sin separates you, how you turn your face away from us. God, we love our sins so much that we don't even recognize how far we've wandered from you. Oh God, I I pray today that we will begin to have hearts that break again. Hearts that break for our own sin. Eyes, Lord, that, that that are strong enough and willing to look hard into the depths of our own heart and see the blackness that's there. God, you see it. Help us to see it. God, we know that our sin offends you and only you. So God, help us to return to you with broken hearts and repentance, genuine repentance. God, forgive us as teachers for teaching things that we don't practice. Forgive us, Lord, for preaching things that we don't practice. Forgive us, Lord, for acting like something in front of Christian friends and being something else elsewhere, Lord. Every moment of our lives passes before your eyes, oh God, and you see it all. And it breaks your heart. So God, let it be our hearts that break today, not yours, ours. Break our hearts. Bring us back to you us to want you more than we want our sin. Help us to want you. Want you enough to run to you. Run away from our sin. God, we come to you today as sinners. We want to say we're sorry. So sorry. We want to turn away from our sin. We want to live a different kind of life. Oh, God, help us to experience the grace of repentance that would lead us to a different life. Pray these things in the precious, holy name of Jesus.